This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Talking to Tom. Uh, longtime listeners know Michael and I... Um, you know, we've been chopping it up about this movie for uh, what seems like forever now, but with the pandemic, you know, you kind of you kind of lose perspective on it. it. It really is one of those situations where all things have always been Tatan in a way. Um, but uh, loyal listeners know in our last episode we uh, we we put out a little um, a, a little uh, a little chatter on uh, Julian Decronau's first film, Raw, and it got us talking about uh, other great debut features. And we thought, you know, what the heck? The fans the fans have been good. The fans have been loyal. Let's give them a little bonus episode this week on another great debut feature. And um, in classic uh, in classic talking Tatan fashion, we both said Reservoir Dogs, right? Just shot straight fr- straight from the hip. Um, and uh, yeah, we we figured let's let's just uh, let's get on the mic and, and chop it up. It's uh, it's an interesting picture, and uh, not a lot of people talk about it. Not a lot of people talk about its filmmaker, Quentin Tarantino. Um, you know, he's one of those indie darlings. He kind of flies under the radar. Most people probably have never even heard of. Him. Oh yeah, he sounds like the the daughter of a lasagna maker, and <laughs> okay. and so I'm always thinking about that and not not his films. But yeah, it's it's nice that we're going to give the kid his due. Yeah, yeah, just uh, just it, it, we're all about uplifting independent films, mainly one independent film uh, specifically, Tatan. Yes. Um, but uh, every once in a while, we we branch out. We we talk a little uh, licorice pizza. And uh, today we're talking a little Reservoir Dogs. So, um, Michael, uh, what, what what do you think about this picture? How how, how did you feel the uh, the first time you saw it? How did you feel rewatching it for the purposes of our discussion today? Well, I mean, so this is fun, and we can say a little bit more about this later. But the genesis of us talking about this now involves uh, Ray kind of catching me and seeing that on on Letterbox that I had recently rewatched it. I do not think uh, until catching you I sounds it a, a little nefarious. <laughs> catching me, yeah. On my on my my alt on my alt letterbox, um, but yeah, I, I don't think I had watched the movie in full since I was maybe in college, and I'm not gonna like age blast myself, but I was in college a long time ago, um, such that I'd kind of disconnected from the film, didn't have a lot of active memories of it. So yeah, watching it now, I think it's really interesting after we've seen so much development in Quentin Tarantino. After we, you know, some of us on this podcast, I know, like went to the theater 10 times to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay, um, well. I'm not going to say who it's not, but it's not it's not me. Um, but I found it just very interesting to reconsider the first film by one of our great or at least one of our most notable filmmakers and to look for kind of the germinal form of some of the things that we would go on to associate with Tarantino sure. and to catch a film at a time where he is still, and he's someone that, that I think, and I like this about him is never shy about his influences, never shy about paying homage, never, never shy about like repeating ideas and specifics and plots from his favorite movies. But I think in this one, it's very heavy. It's very apparent that he's sort of like playing with a certain set of tools 
Um, so it's interesting to think about where he's gone as a filmmaker and what he's explored since this movie. But I did enjoy it. I will say that it's hard. If, if I try to make myself think about the film disconnected from the entire context of Tarantino's filmography, I think it's pretty good. But I, th- I think that some people might overrate this movie. I will say that. I'll be I'll be uh, testy in that way. Where does this rank for you in... I'm I, One of the things I find interesting about him is... Um how his his film his filmography breaks down into three perfect trilogies not perfect in a in like a qualitative sense but there's just a balance to it there's a weird symmetry to his career where he like did these three la crime movies and then three genre exercises that double as revenge thrillers and then did three westerns back to back to back um the last of which is also an la crime movie so i i like that there's sort of a weird perfect circle or symmetry to his career and I agree with you that he's changed really drastically as a filmmaker. I'm curious where you think this ranks, not necessarily in his filmography as a whole, because it is, you know, the person who made Reservoir Dogs is not really the same person who made, yeah, you know, Django Unchained. Um, and I'm 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 curious, like, do you do you think that this is this better than Pulp Fiction for you? Or do you think this is like the first and maybe the worst or, or if not the worst, the least of his efforts? Yeah. I mean, once again, it is a good movie. It is a better movie than most movies that most people will make. <laughs> but using your uh, topography of the three trilogies, which I really like how you did that there. Um, I think that I would definitely go with the first three uh, um, Pulp Fiction Jackie Brown this would be my order see I love I love Jackie Brown and I'm I, I uh I'm not sure if you listen to our Pulp Fiction episode not a fan I've never been a fan of Pulp Fiction. yeah I mean but I would say it's close for me um with those and I think for me my love of Pulp Fiction or not even love my like of Pulp Fiction has a lot to do with the performances um more so than anything else um but yeah but but, but to say that it's at the bottom of that for me once again it's not, not saying it's a bad movie it's always yeah. as bad exactly exactly so yeah, um, but yeah, we're, we're, how about you? You're, I'm just gonna say it. You are kind of a Tarantino guy, at least I think of you <laughs> in that way. Um, you have, you know, you wrote a a video for Wisecrack that on the topic of one Mr. Quentin Tarantino, yeah. both his his writing as a author and a filmmaker. So say a little bit of what you think about this movie. Where does it fall for you? Um, I I really like this one, and I think it it even grows on me a little bit every time I watch it. Um, this is one that I'm not necessarily, I don't know that I'm like a, a hardcore Tarantino guy, but all, you know, straight white dudes who aspire to be filmmakers, you know, they, they go through a Tarantino phase, I think because he's one of those kind of like, I think I've referenced this before the notion of, uh, of a starter pack. Uh, like a starter pack of auteurs with, you know, Tarantino or Wes Anderson or Tim Burton, these guys who have a distinct style, whose movies are, if not highbrow, they're like medium brow. You know, it, it, it makes you feel like you're getting out of your comfort zone a little bit and you can tell that there's an author. There's, there is someone who, who has a, a certain DNA that is uh, pervasive throughout their filmography. So I, I, I can see why folks, you know, Everyone has a Tarantino phase. I know that 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood felt like a little bit of a fluke for me, how much I loved that movie, because his uh, his previous films to that, uh, Django and Hateful Eight, I, I kind of, I feel like the bloom is off the rose a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I digress. When it comes to Reservoir Dogs, this was one of those movies where after watching Kill Bill Volume 1, which was the first of his films I watched, I kind of wanted to go back and, and check out some other stuff. And this is one that that really surprised me at the time, and it still kind of surprises me today because it doesn't... It stands in, I think, really sharp contrast to not just the movies that he inspired or that were ripped off of the Tarantino style, but I think it's a kind of an interesting contrast to Pulp Fiction because while I agree with you that Pulp Fiction has some wonderful actors in it, I don't feel as connected to any of those characters i don't feel as invested in any of their in any of their plight the way that i do with you know Hmm. the the first scene of this movie the the madonna monologue around the table that's all fine and and we know it we love it whatever but to me the first real shot of this movie is tim roth bleeding out in the back of the car and i feel like there are a lot of movies post tarantino or riffing on Tarantino that do that in media res thing, but it's just kind of like an aesthetic or structural thing that it's, it's sort of aping the aesthetic without understanding what makes it work. Um, And I Mm -hmm. think generally the in media res thing just doesn't, doesn't usually work for me, but in this, it, it's a perfect way to really introduce you to that character properly, because regardless of, you know, is he a good guy? He's a bad guy. All we know is like in this moment, he's dying and there's a real humanity mm-hmm. to it. And there's a real, a real wonderful charm and, and chemistry between him and Harvey Keitel, who I think is very good in this picture. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that like similar to uh, the in media res thing. I think the, the nonlinear narrative thing became such a, so in vogue after this of people wanting to 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 do what Tarantino does mm-hmm. and i think he's so he's so deliberate about how he deploys those those conceits in this film sort of holding back his cards about who Mr. Orange is and who all of these guys are in general but really the big reveal that that Tim Roth is a cop in the middle of the movie it is one of those things that it feels like he he really knows what he's doing and that's that's kind of a when when you watch uh, like true romance or natural born killers which i'm not crazy about you you get a sense of his uh, of his voice but really in this one you do it does feel like he's kind of fully formed like he he has so much command over what he's doing with this story and uh i i just really respond to that and i think it's it's something that once again, like I said, whether we know Tim Roth is a good guy or a bad guy, you get invested in his humanity straight away. And I don't really think, I think he, he kind of misses that mark with Pulp Fiction a lot of the time, but not that we're here to, you know, to compare the two of them. For sure. Um, are we going to do a, a summary of this one before we get cooking? Yeah. Why so, not? Do you, uh, do you have one? Did, or, did uh, anyone prepare? I didn't prepare one. I I could I, you know I could give it a go. I can I can spin um, one a little bit. I, I I literally just finished watching it before we jumped on the mic. Nice, that's good. I wish I would have had, had time to do that. Obviously, they can, they can <laughs> you watched this. it. Last I time. love not streaming. I love not streaming. Um, amazing. So, uh, Raymond is now going to attempt to give us a a quick summary of Reservoir Dogs before we really get into it. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs is a uh, a film about a uh, a group of not so gentlemen who uh, organize a diamond heist 
and uh, it goes wrong in such a way that a handful of the uh, of the thieves think that there may be a, a rat in their midst, a uh, an undercover cop who sold them out. And over the course of the movie, they just kind of pick it apart and try to figure out who may have been the one to uh, to blow the whistle on them. All the while, sort of dealing with the fallout of the uh, of the heist gone wrong. Um, you know, a few people get shot, a few people die. And uh, they're they're just kind of waiting for the dust to settle to find out what's next. And uh, yeah, over the over the course of a, a very long afternoon in their sort of uh, their safe house or their uh, their rendezvous point, they just try to pick apart this mystery and uh, and figure out how to uh, how to move forward and survive. Um, and I'm I'm also sure that this is a movie that a lot of listeners have probably seen multiple times. Yeah, and I will say for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, it is currently it's always good to know where we can watch this stuff. It's currently streaming on HBO Max, so if you have an HBO Max account, uh, you you can watch it on that. But there's other ways to watch it. That's just an easy one. That's an easy one. Um, so to, uh, let's let's do this to get started. If you're okay with that, I think there's some themes to this film. Um, and some stuff that happens that are pretty notable that, that always come up when we talk about this movie. I also think it's worth noting that we have the, we're currently at the 30th anniversary of the 1992 Sundance Film Festival. And this movie premiered at that festival. It was one of the darlings, so to speak, of uh, a very notable year at Sundance, a year where there was a lot of Gen X indie cinema. Um, first films by a lot of big filmmakers. And actually, if anyone has a Criterion Channel membership, they currently have a, a whole feature with films from Sundance 1992, not this one, notably. Um, but but I know, you know none of us were there at the time. I would have been a very small boy, and it would have been wildly inappropriate for my parents to send me on a plane by myself to Park City, Utah to watch this movie. But as some of the things you hear about when you hear about this film at Sundance, A, all the stories about how big of a hit it was. People were paying money for like other people's passes to go get into this and see this. People talk about the fact that Tarantino was, you know, a clerk at a video store in Manhattan Beach before he then part of this mythology of good luck. Yeah, there's a lot of mythology that goes behind it. And of course, there's the stories of those who walked out of this film at Sundance due to language and violence. Most notably, uh, it's in the the legend that, that Wes Craven himself walked out of uh, the first screening of this movie because he didn't like the vibe. So I kind of want to start there. And we've, we've, we've talked about Tarantino on the podcast before. We've talked about violence. But one of the things when this movie first came out, and if you go back and read early reviews, a lot of critics asking, do they swear too much? And is there too much violence? And, and I will say this. Uh, I, I don't watch the ear scene. Um, even though really? they don't show it, I, I really struggle to, to, to look when that's happening for anyone who hasn't watched the film, there's an iconic scene where a Michael Madsen's character um, cuts the ear off of a kidnapped cop. The camera pans up to the ceiling. So we do not see the act itself. We do see the aftermath um, and the, the image of, of the side of the head without the ear on it is something that haunts my dreams. Uh, yeah. It's a nasty, it's after a, watching it. a very nasty wound. And it's, it's one of those things that I'm, I'm surprised I know that you're kind of a squeamish viewer. You, you you don't care much for horror films and stuff. Um, but except it, for Titan, obviously. Of, of course, obviously. <laughs> um, but well, that's that's an interesting comparison because there is some some ear trauma in that. Is that something that you? Uh, it, it feels like this is something we would have we would have talked about in the course of the hundreds of talking Titan episodes we've done. Yeah. But uh, I didn't realize. Well, is I mean, that something yeah. that y- you feel is different or is it portrayed in a different way that makes it a little bit more palatable for you? 
I think the hardest thing for me with Tarantino was always getting into the violence. I think the more stylized and genre-based his films got, the more, the more cartoonish. I could appreciate that. Yeah, you know, to be honest, yeah. And even the you know brutality of the final scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's kind of fun. And I think there's something sure. fun about that level of, of violence. Um it maybe makes me sound like a psychopath, or even in like no, I get it. Django, when it's like when when I when I watch slavers get murdered, it's like this is kind of cool. Whereas in this film, there's not really anything fun to the violence. Um, it is it is really brutal, and I think it is, especially with the scene where um, I forget uh, what's Mr. Blonde, right? Mr. Blonde, the Michael Madsen character, when he is you know dancing, it, it's a sinister. Yeah, he's dancing to a really happy song and getting into it while he's getting into torture. And it's sort of a psychologically unsettling moment in the film. And I know that's what a lot of artists and someone like Tarantino wants to do, wants to affect the audience. So in that way, I find it viscerally affecting. But I do wonder if the violence in this film is as effective as violence becomes in later Tarantino films. But curious what you think about that. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, I'm, you know, it's it's kind of funny to me to think how many people were shocked by this and, and how, you know, there are, you know, all those stories about pe- people fainting or, right. And a lot of that may yeah. be, be maybe publicity and print the legend and what have you. But it does kind of seem, on the one hand, it seems mild compared to what he was doing in, you know, Kill Bill, for example. On the other hand, like we, like you were saying, the the violence in Kill Bill, the geysers of blood and all that sort of stuff, is just you know somewhat somewhat cartoonish um i know that that's rooted in in a lot of like uh shambara cinema and stuff like that but it's it it is one of those things that maybe <laughs> i don't know you're a big jackass fan the the movie in which they start doing the paper cuts on the webbing of their fingers oh uh, literally i did a i rewatched jackass <laughs> 1 and 2 last night you're with two friends and the scene yeah the scene where we all couldn't watch was paper cuts out of everything yeah. that happens over this the three hours of jackass we watched last night that was the moment where all of us had our heads like in our hands yeah and it's it's that kind of thing where it's like yeah i've seen greater acts of violence committed on screen but i know what a paper cut feels like i don't know what it feels like to get hit by a bullet or a thousand bullets or to get my head chopped off with a samurai sword or what have you so yeah, there is that weird kind of. It may seem counterintuitive, but the like the smaller and more personalized these things are, the in some ways the tougher it is to watch. Especially, I think there is a certain verisimilitude in this one. I know, like part of this movie's legend is that he had a medic on set whose job was just to gauge how much blood would be on the floor during any given Whoa. scene, based on how Tim Roth had how long Tim Roth had been there with a, a bullet wound. Um, and then by the end of it, it's, it, he, his face is visibly 
drained of blood. His he has a very gray sort of ashen face. The the blood on his shirt is so red and it's so his shirt is so wet and so saturated and it is one of those things where it's like yeah that feels that feels kind of real in a way that makes it a little bit uncomfortable and the haphazardness of yeah. all the blood smears on the on the back um the back seat of the car when the movie opens and and Harvey Keitel's driving him it's it's one of those things that you know one movie later when John Travolta blows Marvin's head off in the back of a car in Pulp Fiction and it's all just like played for laughs or whatever it's just I I think to myself like man it's it really kind of this this amount of violence is really I know that's the point of Pulp Fiction uh but you know I, I think it's a credit to him that it's it's impactful when he wants it to be and and maybe less so when uh he's deliberately going for the the humor um but this yeah, this this movie definitely has. It, it, it's one of the rare uses of even even from like a technical standpoint. It's one of the the rare uses of of handheld cinematography in Tarantino's uh, oeuvre. Like there, every once in a while, they go handheld in this movie, and it feels it feels pretty novel for his films. So even little stuff like that, just to give it a, a more raw and immediate feel, you know it. It, it definitely works. Um, in some ways, it's it's one of those principles of filmmaking that sort of like less is more uh, approach, and and you don't you don't really get a sense of that in a lot of his later movies because his career skyrocketed so immediately that it, it, he he never was working on this budget again. You know, I, I have a quick footnote question for you. Uh, you know, in the pantheon of Gen X straight white dudes that people that want to make movies like a lot. Tarantino's never been in like the top tier of those guys for me. Not because movies aren't great, just because not someone sure. I would ever want to emulate. Did but I don't know this. Was this had Tarantino made many like short films before this? How much so, actual filmmaking had he done? Um, you've come to the you've come to the right the right person for this. <laughs> I figured I figured I would. Yeah. So he did a feature called My Best Friend's Birthday that he and Roger Avery and some of their friends at um at Video Archives did together, and I think twenty or thirty minutes of that movie still remain. You can watch it online. I, I think it was even on YouTube as of a couple years ago. It may still be up. Um, the the last like fifty or sixty minutes of it got uh, lost in a fire. Um, it was being held in a storage unit that, uh, that went up in smoke. And he always talks about that as essentially his film school. Um, that, you know, if you watch some of the footage of it, it's, it's pretty kind of choppy. It's, I would say a lot closer to something like clerks than reservoir dogs Okay, yeah. in, in its sort of, uh, aesthetic approach. Um, when he did this movie, it was on the tale of selling true romance and natural born mm -hmm. killers and his idea was, well, I've got 30,000 uh, bucks after selling True Romance. I'm going to make a movie that I can make for 30,000 bucks, and I'm going to do it with all my friends from acting class. And and this was supposed to be Reservoir Dogs. Um, along the way, he got introduced to Monty Hellman, who's a wonderful filmmaker. He did like Tulane Blacktop and Iguana. Have you seen Tulane Blacktop? I have not, no. I think you would love that movie. Um, uh, but... He he met with Monty Hellman, I think at like a Denny's or something, and Monty Hellman wanted to direct Reservoir Dogs, and within five minutes he said like, you know, this kid convinced me that I wasn't the right choice, and in fact he was, and I just knew I, I wanted to be on board with him, so Monty Hellman came on board to produce it, Um, he helped, I think, get it into the Sundance Director's Workshop, some of the timeline may be fuzzy on this, but... 
uh, Steve Buscemi was at the Sundance Directors Workshop, and and he he workshopped Mr. Pink. Uh, I think they did the scene in the bathroom where they they walk away and they start talking about like, for all I know, you're the rat. Um, and uh, soon thereafter, Harvey Keitel came on board, and in Tarantino's words, Harvey Keitel at that time was not a star; he was a whole fucking planet. And that was what really sent the the movie into the stratosphere. And I think it ended up with like a $1.7 million budget um, because they pre-sold the, the video distribution rights. And um, yeah, it, but literally the only thing he had done before this, uh, I'm sure he had tooled around with cameras and stuff like that, but the only thing he had done with any kind of like ambition towards, you know, getting moving his career forward or, or making a calling card was that uh, my best friend's birthday. Okay. So another thing I do want to talk about is the nonlinear narrative structure in this film. But before we do, I think we got to give a shout out to some friends who are helping us make this episode possible. Um, Raymond, I'm going to pass the mic to you for that. Uh, sure. Yeah. Our sponsor for this episode is Skillshare. Uh, Skillshare is an online learning community where you can connect with other like-minded creatives and explore projects that you are passionate about. You can unleash your creativity and pursue your passion right from the convenience of your home. They offer thousands of classes for creative and curious people on topics such as iPhone photography, editing, drone filmmaking, classes on improving productivity, uh, photography for social media, composition, artivism, and so much more. So if you want to explore your creativity and connect with some cool people, go to Skillshare.com slash SMTM and you'll get a free trial of their premium membership. That's Skillshare.com slash SMTM and you get a free trial of their premium membership. Or click the link down in the show notes. So, uh, Michael, you mentioned the the nonlinear storytelling. We did a, a little bit of a nonlinear ad read there, just plugging it in the middle. Wow, yeah. that's how we do things. Um, I think people know, know that I'm talking to Tan. We're always mimicking elements of the film structure itself. But yeah, and also so I think it was a little question. rude for you to throw me under the bus for watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood eleven times in theaters when you watched Once Upon a Time I in said, the Valley twelve times in theaters. <laughs> yeah, um, I've not gotten there twelve times yet. Um, to be clear, when listener, when Raymond says Once Upon a Time in the Valley, he is referring to Licorice Pizza. A film that um, I've been told by my roommate slash life partner that I need to cool it on for a little bit. So it's a fine. I'm going to take a break, but I will go back before it gets removed from theaters. I think seeing movies, I, I encourage everyone. I'm going to say this and we'll get back to the linear thing. If you like a movie and if you have like AMC A-list or some type of like movie theater subscription thing, if you like something, see it a bunch of times and see what pops out to you. Uh, when, when you're watching different, especially if you're someone who wants to write about movies or make movies or understand storytelling in interesting ways, I really find that to be a valuable exercise. Also sitting in movie theaters is fun. So do that. There's your homework because we always have homework on talking to Tan. And when a movie, when a movie comes out in theaters, especially new films that aren't going to be getting, you know, rep screenings anytime soon, that is for all, you know, probably the last time you'll ever get to see it on the big screen. Uh, you know, yeah. the way it was intended. There's a difference. And the, yeah, the past few weeks, I've seen a couple movies in theaters that I'd only seen on TV screens before. And let me tell you, it makes a difference. It feels very special. So everyone do that. But in Tarantino the meantime, would be the first to agree with us. Yeah. <laughs> he would. Well, I'll say this. The last, the movie I was thinking of that I'd never seen on a big screen before was last week at Tarantino's New Beverly. I saw Magnolia, which I'd never seen ah. on the big screen before. So very fun stuff. And great that in Tarantino's theater, I promise we'll go back to the movie after this, friends, <laughs> but um, you can hear the movie in the bathroom. So one of the worst parts about being yeah. in a movie you're excited about, you know that when you go piss, 
or poop, but probably piss. You're going to miss a little bit of it. Yeah, so it's not, very nice. That in let's Tarantino's not alienate theater, the poopers in our audience. <laughs> I don't want to, never want to alienate the poopers. But you can be in the bathroom. You're not going to see what's happening, but you can at least hear what's going on, which which I love. Um, so that said, an interesting thing this movie does, it's by no means something that um, Tarantino invented, but it's something he, he since has become known for to an extent, is a nonlinear timeline in his movie. This one jumps around quite a bit in particular something that's interesting about this movie is we never see the main thing that happens earlier in the film we know these guys are planning a big job we then cut to after the job we never see the the jewel thievery itself we don't see uh, mr blonde going completely psychotic and killing civilians and all these sorts well, we, of things we don't even Some know that our... they're planning that during the during the first scene yeah. either yeah i mean imagine going into this for the first time in 1992 and just sitting down and being like okay it's a bunch of dapper lads just having a crass conversation about madonna and then all of a sudden like oh my god <laughs> what happened to him well now and relating to the first scene as well i will say the one character who i knew deserved to dial along was Mr. Pink, who doesn't tip. And he didn't want to tip the nice waitress at the diner they were at. And already I'm just like, I hope this guy dies. I think that character uh, was based on... Um, uh, I think he said he based that character on her... I can't remember her real name, but I think it's at Suri underscore Patel 22. Oh, I think it was. I think it was. I think he had met like a four-year-old um, Serby who already at that age was like, fuck tipping i hate this <laughs> for anyone who's listening to this and has never listened to the wisecrack podcast culture binge we're referring to um culture binge host serby who has made comments in the past indicating that she doesn't always think tipping is a necessary social good but you know is what it is but so so i don't know if you can imagine the first time you watch this film in rewatching it what do you think about that that leap in the narrative um what, what, what purpose do you think it serves that very soon i think right after the credit sequence we are jumping towards one of our characters dying of a bullet wound in the back of a car something has already happened we're not quite sure what it was what effect do you think that has uh, on the film sure it's i think it's i think it's kind of interesting the sort of trading on the audience's awareness of like oh you've seen you've seen a heist film you've seen movies about cops and robbers and what have you and this is um we we talked before uh, uh recording a little bit about city on fire the movie that he is sort of indexing off of with this film um you know a lot of People accuse him of ripping it off. He acknowledges it and says it was definitely inspired by City on Fire. But if you watch City on Fire, it's it's really like the last 15 minutes of the movie, he sort of pulls into an hour and a half. And you can kind of, you can, I think that's instructive with regards to your question because you can kind of see how someone like Tarantino who has this encyclopedic, encyclopedic knowledge of film has probably seen so many crime movies, so many heist movies, so many gangster flicks, and and has never seen one that deals almost exclusively with the fallout of their choices or their actions, and, and seeing how that would be the kind of thing that gets his creative juices flowing in a way. Um, and then, you know, turns on City on Fire, and uh, he's watching it, and he's getting a, a very good but somewhat standard crime film. And then by the end of it, he goes, oh, okay, but there's a lot of, it seems like there's a lot of juice here that I could definitely re definitely ring out if I sort of zoom in and focus on the characters. And I think to the extent that this film succeeds, that is sort of its stroke of genius, is that not only does it 
not only does it really sort of home in on the kind of stuff that usually gets sort of shunted to the sidelines of a more traditional crime movie, um, it's also compelling at the same time. It finds its own internal drama uh, that is facilitated by the the events that happened prior to the film, but not necessarily like driven by those events. You know, this still becomes a clash of personalities and we just sort of have uh, the the heist be their shared backstory. Um, but I, I don't know, how, how do you feel about that decision? Because it's certainly one that could be divisive for folks. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it does something really interesting, which is upset, um, and I mean upset in a very literal sense, expectation. Um, I think you watch this movie for the first time and you think, okay, we have the setup of there's some characters are getting into something. Now we're going to find out what the plan is. And in a traditional movie like this way, the first, maybe the whole first and second act might be preparation for and getting into the act. Um, and at the very end of the film, we see it go down. We, we deal with some problems, whatever. So it's great that it rips the rug out from under you and leaves you thinking, it leaves you less confident in your ability to know what's going to happen. I think you made that point before that Tarantino has watched more films of this genre than anyone. And I think he does do a good job of like, putting you in a position where even if you're someone that loves this genre, you're a little bit thrown off. Um, and the other thing it does, which is interesting is kind of fills in different details about different characters at different points, which mean that you kind of um, watch the film both ways. And so I think the film itself is of course nonlinear. I think it creates a, I'll sound like Austin for a second, a subject position <laughs> in which um, time is going in both directions. And, um, but I think it's true. Like there's points of the film where then you learn things. And of course, especially with Mr. Orange, when we learn that he's a cop. You then are watching the film backwards as well. I'm yeah. um, reconsidering things that have happened earlier in the film. Um, the same thing that happens with some of the backstory stuff with, with both, you know, Mr. White and Mr. Blonde, which makes it an interesting film to watch because it, it's sort of, it invites reconsideration as the film is going. Of course, also makes a rewatch great. And I do think it's the sort of movie where if you watch it for the first time, it wouldn't be insane for you to want to watch it again very soon. Um, so so that's the stuff I would say for me with like the nonlinearity, which I think works. Um, I think it's, a, it's, it's an essential part of the movie. However, there's a little bit of that for me. Um, where I'll, I'll describe it this way. It's a movie where as I watch it, it's like, I feel like, uh, so you know, a parent that gets mad at you or a teacher because you don't reach your potential. Okay. You come home with a report card and mom and dad are like, Oh, you Raymond, you got a, a B minus, but we know you're our a plus boy. Um, I think to an extent the landing of the film, I don't know where it should have gone, but it feels a little bit like it didn't hit the heights it was capable of. And I think to an extent, the, the, the structure of it does that. And I think the, the, the warehouse limits things, maybe. Maybe I'm just being hyperbolic here because I want to throw some, some gas on the fire, throw some gas on the undercover cop. But um, I, I don't know. I, I wonder if the convention of not having a, uh, that commitment to nonlinearity at all limits then uh, the storytelling potential. Yeah, I can I can see what you're saying because it is, it's very purposefully a, a sort of small scale film, um, and I do think, you know, watching it, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, watching it just uh, a few hours ago, I really love the cut to black in this. I love the needle drop. Uh, I love 
the yeah. the the sort of undercutting of the violence and and all of that and these sort of cheerful chords coming in and i think all of that's really effective um but for me i think one of one of the things that i uh, two things your argument that being contained to the warehouse maybe limits its potential i don't necessarily think that's untrue i i can see how people perceive that i also think though once you kind of commit to that conceit, I think it would sort of compromise the film's integrity to, to like yeah. go beyond those walls and end in like a really big conflagration, the likes of which you kind of hear happening outside the warehouse with gunshots yeah. and Steve Buscemi screaming and stuff like that. That's um, true. It's true. But I also agree with you that there, there's a sense that it maybe feels a little too tidy by the end of it in that, you know, in his last in his last moments, Tim Roth uses his dying breath to I- admit that he's a cop, which essentially seals his fate. Um, it, yeah. Maybe he's trying to, but I, I do think that's maybe instructive because he, at that point, could be trying to unburden himself of a certain guilt that he feels, because regardless of whether or not Mister White is a good guy, he he's been decent to him. And he feels like he's let him down. And I was kind of, you know, kicking that around in my head after this watch of like, he couldn't have just made it 10 more seconds before confessing to this guy. Maybe maybe you could have gotten to a hospital. Maybe you could have made it out all right. But there, yeah. is, there, there is a certain beauty, even if it is maybe too convenient or, or too tied off, that he does feel a sense of responsibility to, uh, to Harvey Keitel by the end of it. How do you feel about that? Well, I do think that that's one of my favorite. Uh, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit in that I don't know if I love where the film lands in consideration of the whole story. I love that final moment when Harvey Keitel, after getting uh, getting his wing clipped in a good old fashioned Mexican standoff, you know, crawls over to the Tim Roth character and sort of cradles him as they're both dying. Yeah, uh, and just that idea too that this is. Harvey Keitel's character is is so caring towards this person whose government name he doesn't really, I don't think, knows um, in that moment. And the way in which Tim Roth's character, like you just said, he, he might be able to pull this. He might be able to live, basically. There, mm-hmm. There's a chance there. But it seems like he is overwhelmed by that care and, and commits to his like humanity before he commits to his profession as, as undercover yeah. cop. And it makes the betrayal all that more, yeah, so much more potent that like Harvey Keitel thought there was some honor among thieves. (laughs) For sure. I mean, I I think that was, yeah, it was kind of like the one thing it seems like he's, he's, he's holding on to there. So yeah, I mean, I think that that was played very well. And like we kind of said before, I think Keitel just, just crushes this movie. On that note, the sort of honor among thieves, one of the things that stuck out to me on this rewatch was how Tarantino really one of the reasons I love the Sopranos is that the show knows how stupid all these guys are and it's not trying to like make the godfather it's not you know it's not sexy they're not all in control there's you know and this movie kind of has that streak running through it a little bit too which is that like no, these are like bad guys and they may like walk in slow-mo and look cool and stuff. But at the end of the day, 
a lot of them are sort of undone by their own stupidity and their belief that there is this sort of honor among thieves. Like that's the the funniest thing to me in any of those narratives that underpin like the Godfather or Goodfellas or you know any of those true stories. It's like these guys spend years and decades knowing each other and saying like oh there's nothing worse than a rat and you never you never sell out your friends and then as soon as the fbi knocks on their door they they flip and form it immediately it happens all the time and this movie kind of has a a similar streak to it with especially with um with uh, lawrence tierney's character like when when he comes in at the end and he says something he says something to the effect of like well i know i know that he's the one who sold us out because he's the one i wasn't 100% on and as they're talking about it they chatter back and forth a little bit more and Harvey Keitel goes, well, do you have any proof? And he goes, I don't need proof. I have instinct. And it's like in the same yeah. breath that you just said your instinct fucking failed you by hiring the guy in the first place. And I just laughed so hard when he delivered that line this time because it was just like, it really seemed a, a sort of intentional undercutting of the the sort of like formality of the, you know, the mobster credo and all that stuff. But because then the one guy who's really like a true blue psychopath, Mr. Blonde, is the one who fucking lives by that shit. And they and that's the that's the reason that Mr. Orange, you know, uh, slips up as he, he goes, yeah, he was going to rip you off. And he's like, sorry, man, that's the one guy out of all of you I know wouldn't rip us off because he had plenty of chances to do that. So. There yeah. is that that tension of like what these what these folks expect of each other and what they expect of themselves and how their image of themselves or their self mythology is just like failing them at these extraordinarily crucial moments. Yeah, I mean, just a couple uh, things riffing off that. Like, I mean, Mister Blonde really just dropped the ball when he didn't take his no show job. If if a criminal ever offers me a no-show position where I am a formally employed at the docks and I'm getting paychecks and benefits. And, uh, you know, when the cops show up to look for me, they cover for me. I mean, come on, man. Uh, he does. He like does take said, the gig. He, I, I thought he didn't want to. Cause he like, I, I thought he says, I really want to work though. And that's how he kind of gets in on this job. So I guess he takes it as well. He says, I, I don't want to uh, be lifting any crates or anything. And then Chris Penn tells him, well, you're not going to lift shit. We, we clock you in and out, blah, 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 blah. And what he says, though, is like, hey, I really appreciate that. The whole thing is saying, like, we got to get the Scagnetti fuck off your back. So we'll set you up to look like you have a real job. And he goes, OK, that's all well and good. But I also want to do some real work. Well, that, and that's what I'm criticizing. Well, yeah. but that's that's the key to his character. Like his. Oh, his no, sort no, no. of criticizing that in life. You're totally right about his character. And I think that's a brilliant way to put it. I'm just saying to our listeners, if you ever get offered a no-show get offered job, a no-show job, don't also say, but I really want to work too. Just hang <laughs> yeah. out, watch movies, enjoy yourself. But that's the thing um, to him is yeah. like, he, yeah, he could just sit on his, on his ass and collect a paycheck. That'd be, that would be so easy, but he's not in it for the money. He's in it because this is his pretext to fucking love of the people. game. Yeah. He just he's, he's loves he's the game. You know, he's a real player. Oh, uh, that's great. I think one other scene that just stands out to me that I do think gives great insight into Tarantino as as a writer, as a director, as someone who loves film, as someone who likes to make films, as, as we've learned recently, make films about making films. I love when we flash to um, the, the Roth stuff before 
this shit goes down and when Roth's undercover mentor in the force gives him a script and they run lines together because he has to learn the drug yeah, deal story the to commode fit in story. with the guys. Yeah. I just love cutting towards like a version of scene study on the roof. <laughs> yeah, you know, Tarantino, right. like you said, it's pretty well known. Tarantino, to, to some extent, I think, wanted to be, you know, be an actor at one point. Obviously, he's acted mostly in his own movies um, and from Dust Till Dawn, maybe some other stuff. But, and Golden you know, you, you really, yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> but if you've, you know, anyone who's been in acting class before, he captures that energy in this undercover cop it's, scene. And it's very fun and I think is a little like seed of the fun that he's going to have over his next eight films. It's it's funny that you mention that because he tells this story in an interview about how when he was in acting class, one of the things that he would do, some his first exercises as a writer, is that he would take the scenes that they were working on, you know, Paddy Chayefsky or whatever, and then he would go in and he would make edits. He would he would rewrite and expand the scenes that they were working on. And that to me is sort of what he did with City on Fire in this movie, which is like if you if you watch mm. especially the last 20 minutes of City on Fire, it really does feel like him going like, OK, I, I like this beat. I like this beat. The Mexican standoff is great. I like this premise. Now, let me just sort of expand and fill in the blanks and stuff like that. And it, it is that um, that energy with Tim Roth in this. It, you you hit the nail right on the head. Someone kind of like workshopping material for an acting class or workshopping a monologue for an audition. And one of the things I I loved about this um, that whole sequence is when he <laughs> when he gets into the bathroom with the four sheriffs and the and the dog. The sheriffs all have a bunch of dialogue that could not have possibly been in the anecdote that Tim Roth is telling Harvey Keitel and Lawrence yeah, Tierney yeah, yeah. and stuff. And the dialogue in that is just like, it's one of those things, again, that sort of undercuts not only the the uh, the criminals in this, but the authority figures as well. It's like the guy going, Mr. I am going to shoot you in the face. And just like this weird buffoonish cadre of boys who are all just kind of talking shop and building up their own weird self mythology at the same yeah. time that Tim Roth is literally monologuing his self mythology. I, yeah. I, I do think the more I think about it, I think that's my favorite run of the film. The, the Tim Roth learning to go undercover getting ingratiated getting ingrained in the gang and stuff like that i think it's just fun and that's i, I think because for me that's getting at some of the stuff that i really enjoy uh tarantino doing later in his career um i i like when tarantino is having fun i mean i think he's always having fun but there's a a, a type of of fun that goes on there that i really enjoy great parts of the movie yeah also just tim roth underrated i still i still think of tim roth as someone who's underrated underrated uh under uh, i'm sure he's uh he's received his plaudits he's a wonderful actor is he, is he i just i just feel like people don't talk about tim roth enough that's yeah. all i'll say all right um, tune in next yeah. week for rothcast rothcast can't wait um and one quick thing bef before we we start wrapping up um i'll do a little bit more austin due diligence i do think this film represents a, a, a fun use of a philosophical concept that i think tarantino is 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 a great representative of which is the the notion of creative repetition um you know it's something we get in, in nietzsche and kierkegaard taken up by gilles deleuze in in, in 19 
uh, 60s France, 60s and 70s. But this idea that like when we are making art or when we're doing philosophy or coming up with ideas, rather than thinking of the creative act as like starting with the blank slate and making stuff, so much of the best art is a creative repetition of what has already happened. We repeat something through our own mind or in a certain cultural or social context, and that's when beautiful things happen. And, and I was just struck thinking about how much of Tarantino's career is a testament to the power of creative repetition and how when we're interested in and love things from art or in a non-filmmaking sense philosophy or whatever it's it's a really i think it's just a cool example of what happens when someone who loves movies wants to creatively repeat the things that he loves but done with such a passion and point of view that new things emerge out of that and i think that you know the the notion of stealing like an artist is 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 in the in the discourse and stuff. But I just think Tarantino, such a great representative of that, and I think you see that uh, you know in this film. Yeah, it um, reminds me of uh, I, I love uh, Mary Shelley. Um, Frankenstein's my mm-hmm. my favorite book ever written, and there's a, a quote from Mary Shelley where she said, "In uh, invention, uh, I'm reading it. It must be humbly admitted, does not consist in creating out of void, but out of chaos." When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think about that so often, um, not necessarily just in the context of, of uh, magpie filmmaking or filmmaking in general, but sort of what you're touching on there, that notion of, of just kind of like fully embracing that you, your ideas act as a synthesis of, of all your influences and, and, and every, you know, every, every movie you've ever seen, every book you've ever read, all the comic books that he spent time flipping through and stuff like that. And there is, I think that his, not necessarily his success, because I think he's talented in his own right, but so much of his style and what makes his movies such catnip for a certain type of viewer is that that sense of like, well, there's not, not only am I getting an interesting story uh, in its own right, but there's always stuff that's just kind of tucked into the corners and folded into the dialogue mm-hmm that can work as like a um a path that he's blazing for you he always talks about how his soundtracks in his movies are like making a a playlist for the world where he just wants to introduce you to a lot of his favorite music and his movies kind of have that same energy there's just this this enthusiasm for the art form um in general that all of his movies just exude at at every moment and every frame and i i think that's one of the things that that makes them so exciting um i know for my two cents after i discovered kill Bill volume one it really kind of rearranged my brain because i didn't really know you could make movies like that that are like mm-hmm. well it's a little kung fu and it's a little bit western and it's all this weird revenge plot and and um there's this this book that's called like kill kill bill the unofficial handbook or something like that I have it on my shelf. I could probably pick it out, but it it literally is just a 
a summation that someone did of just like going through and isolating every single movie reference, whether it's a shot that he, he stole from a different movie or a poster that's in the frame or a dialogue reference. And in a weird way, that kind of became like a Rosetta stone for me that helped me branch out and discover a lot of those movies he was referencing. And it, it really is one of those things that like, like I was saying early on, he is such a great starter pack director because he he does get you excited about discovering the films that he's quoting and, and discovering the films that uh, he's so passionate about. Um, Amazing. Um, well, I think we can both agree it's a good movie. You should you should uh, <laughs> if you've ever seen this movie, you should watch it. If you've seen it before, definitely rewatch it because there's a lot of, of meat on that bone, a lot of stuff to explore there. Um, I think before we go, we do want to give a shout out to our buddy Austin. Yeah. Who. We're, we're missing right now, and if anyone's wondering why he's not here, we just wanted to share that with you. He said it was okay. Uh, he's having to take care of, of his dog right now who's been in the animal hospitals, have, having a rough go at it, and he's being a caring dog parent. Um, and we want to send him good vibes, right? Um, yeah, he, uh, he, he texted us early today, um, early this morning, saying that he's – He's at the emergency vet with the pup. Um, we haven't heard anything other than that. Hopefully his dog's doing all right. Hopefully uh, his pup pulls through. And uh, I'm sure that he would appreciate uh, if you folks reach out to him and let him know he's uh, he's in your thoughts. Send him some love on Twitter at, uh, at Austin underscore Hayden. Um, but we uh, we announced it on the, on the last episode of Show Me the Meaning, not that that really has any bearing on our Talking to Tan schedule. Um, that we were going to be doing Little Miss Sunshine this week. Uh, we are going to wait for Austin to get back to do that. And so, uh, you know, Michael and I thought uh, we, we don't want the listeners to go without a, uh, an episode for the week of uh, Show Me the Meaning. What the heck? Um, no. Death before dishonor. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So definitely hit him up. Um, so, you know, housekeeping stuff before we go. Uh, Raymond. People are probably listening to this thinking about all the references you're dropping throughout films, books you're talking about, and they want to chase chase the the fragments of your mind. Where can they find you on social media to ask you to follow up on all these things and give them the syllabus they need to truly appreciate cinema at a high level? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria, and you can find Ringo Lamb's City on Fire on Canopy if you have a uh, if you have a library Ooh, card. Good to know. Sign up on Canopy for free. Uh, you can watch 10 movies a month there for free. And uh, it's a really, really good movie. It, it's different enough from this film that it makes just a, a wonderful double feature. And I, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, to be clear, no one's paying us to say this. Use Canopy. It rips. Um, you can find me at Michael O. Burns on Twitter, uh, Burns42069 on Letterboxd. And as well on, on Wisecrack and, and Culture Binge, where I think we're, I'm going to be talking with Raymond soon. So if you're not a... Uh, yeah, doing some like Culture Binge talking to Tan, Yeah, so if you like the dynamic of, of talking to Tan, check out uh, Culture Binge, where Raymond and I will bring this same, you know, wit and commitment to truth-telling at all cost to a discussion of popular culture Absolutely. outside of just movies. Um, so I'll, I'll give you the last word. Oh, Take us home, um, you know? Land, yeah. land the plane. Um, as as always, folks, never rat on your friends, and always keep never. your mouth shut.